This episode of The Gourmet Goober is brought to you by SoFoodie. That's foodie with a PH. SoFoodie is the go-to platform that highlights the stories and showcases the talent of brothers and sisters who are innovating and creating in the world of food and beverage. Follow them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at SoFoodie, that's foodie with a PH, or sign up for their email at SoFoodieWithAPH.com. This is JJ Outlaw. And T. Outlaw. And you are listening to a new episode of the Gourmet Goober podcast. You can find me, JJ Outlaw, always on Twitter at JJ Outlaw. You can also find me um, as part of Instagram at Gourmet Goober. And as always, we start each in every show with me saying hi to my best friend, my BFF, that dude. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. The Dark Desperado. <laughs> my hubby t outlaw how's it going babe i'm doing all right that's right reference me now is the dark desperado or at least until the pandemic is subsided you know we're just gonna humor in people <laughs> that's right just you know just keep patting me on the back and calling them even but don't touch me uh, I am T Outlaw, and you can find me as such on Twitter, uh, T O U T L A W. That's right, I can spell. <laughs> and you can also find me on Instagram at T Outlaw Chelsea Wells, like the movie. Now, if you want to find us on Facebook, Don't. and <laughs> well, you can't find us individually on Facebook. We we ask that you don't. But the Gourmet Goober has a Facebook page. It used to be part of our Gourmet Goober blog. In fact, that's where you can find us, Gourmet Goober blog on Facebook. You can always hit us up at thegourmetgoober.com. You can also send us a lovely letter via Gmail. And our Gmail address is thegourmetgoober at gmail.com. And today's show, we are super excited. We are welcoming our second guest. Woohoo! And this interview is a lot of fun, you guys. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Um, we interviewed Ariel D. Smith. She is the host of the Food Truck Scholar podcast. Yeah. Um, and Ariel, oh my gosh, she is just so brilliant. Um, she, she naturally covers food trucks, obviously, hence the name of the podcast. Right. But the really cool thing as well is, in addition to that, if she was not badass enough, she is actually pursuing her PhD um, right now 
um, from Purdue University. And her dissertation is about food trucks and their effects on communities of color, um, particularly relates to economic and, you know, bringing the community together. And she has this really great um, tie to from food trucks to hip hop that I didn't even know existed. Right. So we chat a little bit about that as well. And I got to say, I when I was coming up with my list of dream guests, she was one of them when I was introduced to her when we were on the So Foodie, um, like the 20 top 20 like um, black female led um, food and beverage podcast. Mm-hmm. And so I was really super psyched when she said yes. So um, the interview is pre-recorded, so you'll hear that in the end. Um, and as always, whenever we do that, our show is a little bit different. So you'll want to just wait around to the last segment that we normally share, the best thing we ate this week to catch our interview. It'll be well worth it, though. I cannot say that enough. Yes, it is definitely worth the wait. And she is definitely a, an emerging social scientist. And she's real, yo. I will say that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so this is a part of the show that we share our week. And our week, at least my week, has been kind of crazy since the last podcast. I tell you what, I will let you go first and then I will discuss what happened to me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Let's just get, you know, simple little me out of the way. Just, <laughs> I mean it like that. No, no, not, that's the thing. Nothing... <laughs> Nothing crazy has happened. Uh, for the most part, my week has been fairly quiet, but at the same time, fairly challenging because previous podcast episode, I was uh, kind of in a space where I had a little time off and I had time to reflect on things as a person and as a guy, as the goober is touching my face explicitly because I've developed more facial hair. No, actually, that was cat hair. I don't know why I had <laughs> cat hair. Did the cat, like, it, jump up and pimp slap me? It was just, like, this big random piece of, like, and I can even tell you which cat, because it was red. It was Bit-Bit. Okay. Was Bit-Bit snuggling with you last night? I don't recall. If we, <laughs> if we were snuggling, you didn't tell me. <laughs> I had random cat on my face. I don't know how that happened, but Hopefully it's the pillow, but no, for the most part, my week was fairly quiet. Like I said, I was kind of on a short little, I guess it wasn't a short little furlough, but it was a, it was a fairly short furlough, and I'm glad to be back uh, at least this week. So that part was actually pretty crazy, and got time to horribly, horribly not do as much around the house as I needed to, but for the most part, my week was just about seeing how the pandemic has ravaged a lot of different communities and it's not over y'all now it's it's not over at all but i'm just glad to be safe and sound at least for now so let's keep you know keep it on moving but yeah that was mostly my week well a couple things one i I guess I'm surprised that you shared the furlough because I know that was something that you previously didn't want to talk about. And it, it was something that we're very fortunate. Um, and But like, like many of the listeners, um, there are many people right now whose livelihoods have been affected by the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the newspaper industry is no exception. 
um, in the news industry in general. Yeah. And so I know that when we initially found out, it was kind of scary for a moment, especially for you, because you have never experienced anything like that in your entire professional career. No, I've never seen a time off for other than vacations or health reasons. That's it. Yeah. So, um, but you know, knock on wood, thank you to God. We were able to kind of get through that without having any disruption at all, either to our household or how things run. And we're very lucky that we're in a weird spot because we live in one state, but essentially our livelihoods come from a different state. Yes. And so because of Illinois and Indiana, the way they handle things are so differently. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though I'm a Chicagoan, let me just say that I just live, we live on the South, South side of Chicago, y'all, but technically the South, South side, it's in a different state. But (laughs) what I say is you had to go through the whole process of like, What's in Illinois? In certifying, yeah, yeah, but That's it, the thing. but it went really smoothly for us, and so I'm just really grateful that nothing was disrupted from that time off. And actually, in a weird sort of way, it was kind of nice to see you separated enough that you could just be reflectful. And yeah, I know you had like a ton of stuff that you had planned. And I kind of hinted on you being off last podcast where I was talking about how you were just really thrown down in the kitchen. And that was partially why. Mm. Um, But yeah, um, going through that really, I think, made me think for the many families that unfortunately the furlough was longer than the time that you had off and how you know, for many of them, the process on covering themselves, it didn't go as smoothly as yours. And we, you know, you turn on the TV, any place where you see people waiting in line, you know, for food or things like that. And it, it, it gives you a moment of gratitude that one, that we're very blessed that we didn't have to go through that. But two, it makes you frustrated because you know that other people weren't so fortunate. You know? Right, we were extremely lucky with a lot of things in terms of planning, but also with the pandemic because we got the chance to quote unquote shop our freezer. Yes, and I at least tried to uh, step up my cooking skills <laughs> with some success and some uh, a little more experimental. Let's just say I, I do get experimental in the kitchen, but. Uh, for the most part, once again, I am blessed. Yeah, we, again, I, I'm just very fortunate. And, you know, I, I know seeing you go through that because my careers had a little bit more flux than yours. So I was just like, okay, we're going to be fine. I know what to do. I know where to go. You know, this is why I have mm. all of this stored and saved and put away for this situation. You know, But also, as your wife, and knowing that your big concern was making sure that you could provide for us and keeping everything going and we're okay, and having those deep conversations, um, I don't want to go into a lot of details, because again, we don't, 
that even though we talk about our lives, there's parts of our lives that we normally don't share. Yeah, but and, at the same time, you know, it's, I mean, this is the thing. There are people who are in dire, dire straits. There are people that are going through bigger things than anything that we can coerce in this sentence. But let's talk less about me and more about the goober over here who uh, actually went through bigger things than I could ever bring to the table. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I <laughs> unexpectedly, unexpectedly, <laughs> and I cannot unexpected. stress the unexpectedly part enough. <laughs> I do, do, do. am starting a new job. With a new nonprofit, you'll say what? You'll say what? It and it, it is so crazy how this all happened. Okay, it it wasn't even a position that I had applied for or looked for. Apparently, this is like a new position that I was asked to be considered and take. Um, without going into a lot of details, because I always like to. Although I have talked about the nonprofit I worked for before, I have never mentioned them by name and I never will. Mm -hmm. um, because, one, I'll be honest, not everyone knows that I host a podcast, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is kind of funny. I feel like sometimes that I like live this like secret second life that my coworkers don't know. She, about. Yeah, she puts on the James Bond pants. <laughs> There's a couple of times when I was at work where I had to finish the podcast when we released on Mondays that I had to sneak and put it together at work and no one see it. Mm -hmm. So I was like, quick, download the, download the MP3. <laughs> Mix it all together. Upload it. <laughs> you know, it's like, you can almost hear the Mission Impossible thing. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> like you can hear it in the background. Um, but... I, I love the nonprofit that I worked in, um, the nonprofit that dealt with domestic violence, but it's so far away. Like, not really. It's it's only like what? Like, we did the math. Like, we did the mileage. It's like 37 miles away. But? But it's 37 in Chicago miles. So it either took me 45 minutes, which is the fastest I ever got to work. Like, I went into the office on Saturday morning, like this past Saturday, to do some work. Saturday. Yes. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, in order to just get some things in my new boss, which I'll also mention in a minute, mm. asked for some details. And I didn't know where to find it. And I was finishing up a grant application. And the details are also in the office that has been shuttered and closed because of the pandemic. So I got up. We took our cat to the vet. <laughs> For a bit, bit, and then I like drove like a bat out of hell um, before the building closed at one. And luckily, I got there right around forty-five minutes. But in normal Chicago traffic, before anything happened, it would normally take me about two hours to get to work each way, to and from work. In Chicago highway traffic, and it was exhausting. Like I would come home and I would just fall over. And that's not even to mention at one point there was a mandatory training that I had to do 
And the only time that I could take the training to fulfill Illinois guidelines was at night. And my boss at the time, um, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not going to go into a lot of details um, for various reasons, but let's just say that I would readily work 12 hour days, a full day, and then that training, and then drive two hours at home, going home at the middle of the night. And I just remember you being so afraid and me having to pull over because I would just be so damn exhausted. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. There was a couple of times I was, I was talking to my parents in the drive home because I just wanted to talk to someone on the phone because I was afraid that I wouldn't make it home. Um, and it just, it takes its toll out of you. And so I kind of went back and forth, whether or not it was something that was worth it. And I love what I did, but I, I think big daddy, you can be honest in saying that you could see sometimes how it just took a toll on me physically. Um, yeah. Just neither, to go one through of us that. Are, neither one of us are spring chickens, but you say, okay, you know, it's like 30 something miles. There are people who have come from longer distances to do their jobs. And, you know, God bless you all. That being said for us, uh, that mileage, whether it be highway or not, does involve a lot of sitting and waiting and other pedestrians, other riders, other drivers. And it it took a a toll on both of us and really for the goober as she matures and does so by so well. Uh, okay, don't make it seem like I'm some old old lady. I was trying my best to tap, <laughs> tap dance around that. Yeah, I was I know. doing my best to tap dance around it, but I was actually thinking more of like just some of the people that you work with who are cool. But you know, sometimes for a demanding boss, it takes some work, and it took a toll on the goober. So, and here's the thing, um, goober gone. <laughs> here's the thing. Let me just also say in Chicago. Having long commutes is nothing. Like when I we first moved there, we lived in a different city. It's not unheard of for people to do long commutes, but I just know for me and a lot of the things that I did, it it just it took a lot. Like I would just come home and just crash. Yeah. Um so when the pandemic hit and working from home. I, I, I was reminded because I used to work from home when I freelanced that I really liked the flexibility. I didn't miss going back and forth to the office, even though we were shelter in place. There were times that I had like there was one time literally that I drove two hours into work during the pandemic to check my voicemail because I couldn't access it from home. Okay. And I was struck with the absurdity of having to do that. But I did it because, you know, it's part of my job. I love what I do. But it it's growing more and more impractical considering what's going on and how dangerous it is. And like I said, like we talked about in the beginning, the virus is still a thing. And so I found myself thinking more and more over the past few months, I really wish as talks were underway about going back into the office. Right. I was really wishing that I was in a position where that didn't have to be. Well, 
Sometimes when you ask the universe for things, the universe responds. So enter in this new nonprofit, which again, I will not mention the name. Um, it's the place. Sorry for the background noise. No, it's very small. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Um, so basically, this is a really great nonprofit that deals with something that's close to me personally, because I've lost families to it, lung cancer and other respiratory illnesses. And it's very timely, too, because the COVID crisis does affect the, the, lungs. the lungs and these systems. Yeah. And so I, um, within a short time frame, I was contacted um, about one position. I wasn't even thinking about it, but I was like, sure, you know how things happen. And you're just like, sure, I'll talk to you. And <laughs> not even said. thinking about it. Right. And then they're like, oh, no, 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 no. We have something that is perfect for you. Yeah, they changed, they flipped the game for you. Right. And then literally in a matter of days, I had like a job offer. And at first I was, I was kind of taken aback, like, wow, this is crazy. I wasn't even actively looking for a position. And this happened in the middle of the pandemic. And then I thought, holy crap about the timing, because... I there is a new person that started who is essentially my new boss. Yes. Who started almost the day that I got the job offer. And I was like, oh my God, what do I do? Cause I still, even though a lot there were a lot of things that were exhausting about where I work, I still liked it. I still loved the mission and I felt really strongly and I've been very successful in getting the money. But I I admit that I don't as much as I like grant writing, I miss other aspects of the writing that I used to do. Yeah. And this position, the new position I was offered, allows me to do more of what I love, you know, going back into press release um, writing. Um, there's a biannual newsletter that I get to work on, and I get to work with their new diversity director and crafting a message. I mean, it's everything. If I, like, sent the man upstairs a list, it's like everything I wanted right? Yeah. Always be careful what you ask for. And it actually allows me to work permanently from home because the job was in a different state. And I initially, the posting was for a different state. And I was like, there is no way that we are leaving where we are in the middle of a pandemic to go to that state. <laughs> yes. That, that is not happening. And then they're like, oh, we like you so much. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah. You can just work from home. We'll, we'll get you set up. So now, then I had to make the difficult decision. I slept on it. I asked if I could sleep on it overnight. And the weirdness is that when I made the decision, then I had to notify everybody, including the new person, that I, I helped interview and she's super nice. And I was, you know, helping onboard and just kind of telling her, it's not about you. This has, you know, this so, is just yeah, kind yeah. of a weird timing thing. That's right. Hi, welcome to your orientation. Hope everything is going well. Hi, by the way, um, I'm going to be bouncing. No, 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 no. It wasn't like that. In fact, I was very careful in talking to the new organization and letting them know what was going on. It was important for me to take longer than two weeks just to make sure she's acclimated. And I needed to make myself available, at least in the short term, even after I start the new position, because 
she needs to know very quickly where everything is. Yeah. And I told them that. And again, they were incredible. They're like, you know what? We're really glad that you think enough of the other organization to do that. Take all the time you need. You tell us to start date. And I was like, oh my God. So last week I had the really uncomfortable situation of telling the executive director, telling um, my new boss, telling the person that I was working with for the transition for the social media telling the staff um and it was harder than i thought like literally big daddy can tell you i was crying at some point because i just i felt guilty like i felt guilty and i was trying to figure out why i felt guilty i think part of the reason why i felt guilty is that it the transition of what was happening with the new person okay and i really liked her and then I felt guilty because I'm just like, this is crazy that all of this happened so quickly. In the middle of a pandemic. In the middle of a pandemic. I know there are other people who are out of work and this just happened like within days, literally. Um, yes, it was a short turnaround. I, I felt really guilty as well because, you know... It's weird because I got the offer around the time that I started talking and we started laying out plans. Okay. And so I'm just like, okay, I have to tell them as soon as possible because I would feel like a fraud, like making these plans, knowing that I may be leaving. You know what I'm saying? Well, I understand in part because I know when I left my previous employer, we were about to go through a entire redesign. And once again, always be careful what you ask for. I got to leave literally the weekend before the new redesign of said media was occurring like that weekend. So it, you just, it, you know, all the new things that they were playing, I was like at first having to learn and train for. It. And then it was like, yeah, this is great, but I'm about to bounce. So pretty much for all you kids out there, this was great, but no, won't be doing that. So thank you. Bye bye. But yeah, I do admire the goober for her loyalty to said organization. So that's cool. Yeah, I, I just it was. Like I said, it just couldn't have happened at a weirder time. And I, I think I told pretty much everybody that I needed to tell. I hadn't had a chance to talk with one member of the leadership team. It was just timing because I plan, I wasn't sure how to tell the staff. And I guess the staff was notified because someone put out like a request for my new post. Okay. And then I was like, oh, crap. I didn't want them to find out that way. So then I had to send them like an email just explaining what happened. And I thank them because my tenure there wasn't very long. I mean, I've been there since March of last year. But I think for many reasons, as we are looking into a new world, this new position is the best possible outcome for us. I mean, for me personally, because... Let's face it, it's, I don't 
really plan on going back to Chicago, at least not in the near future. It it just doesn't look like it's something that's practical. Um, as far as working in the city, going back and forth, because I either drove or I took public transportation on Fridays and even public transportations now is not a really safe place to be. And I was just thinking one of us is going to have to be permanently home because your situation is still up in the air for various reasons. Mm. So, and I say this as far as us going back to the office. Okay. Um, so without boring everybody, cause I know you guys are listening, like, where are you going with this? <laughs> um, the yeah. Uber bounces. Yes. Yeah. This is a big life change for me and going back to working from home. I'm excited. I'm a little nervous. The last time I worked from home, we did have Baraboo. So mm-hmm. he, he was my office mate, our dog, um, who is no longer with us. So I think we'll have to name one of the cats as the office mate. Or else we have to replace him with another dog <laughs> at some point. Yeah, we, we've, we've been talking about that. But yeah, I'm just super excited, but it's going to be a lot of... It's going to be very harried over the next couple of weeks. I don't know how I'm going to fit all of this in. I think actually I should have taken more time before starting the new position because I start that in August and I'll be working through the end of the month with my current organization. Um, But yeah, I'm just, I'm excited and I'm scared and I'm freaked out, but mostly really jazzed about this new position because it's literally like everything that I could have wanted. And the funny thing was, I was just thinking like, you know what? I really like working from home. I, I, I'm not in a hurry to go back to an office space. And again, being in a, a space that I can do that is very fortunate. I know not everyone else has that situ- had le- has that luxury right now. Yeah. But at the same time, after being home for, I don't know, on the precipice of four months and now saying, oh, I'm going to be working for the most part from home now for my job. I don't know. We'll see how this goes after a few months. I I wish nothing but the best for you. I just want to make sure that you are cool with you're going to be home every day seeing someone like me every day. (laughs) I thought you'd just be happy because I'm home to cook for you every day. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You can leave the food underneath the door. but You know what you did, though? Daddy did that's really cool is... We have this small bedroom and he, during his furlough time, you change that and you update it out and you take a lot of the stuff that we've been using in this room for storage. So we are able to use it as an office again. Mm-hmm. So you could not have known that this was happening and you were preparing this office. So to be able to work from here, because I've had like a lot of Zoom calls, as you can imagine, over the last week, getting ready to train people about my replacement. Um, so yeah, um, having an office space does help with that. So we're not looking at each other 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it is a little different than when I freelanced before. Cause like before when I was stuck on a project and I wanted to get out of my own head, if I had writer's block, I would simply go to Starbucks or something. Mm-hmm. That is not an option anymore. She has to be in the honeycomb hideout right now. <laughs> but you know what? I, I think it'll work. I, I really do. And 
more importantly, I, I, I'm excited because I remember when we first got married, because we, we worked it out. We saw each other like, what, 16 waking hours a week because we work office schedules in our commute time. Yes. So that is no longer a thing. So that is a blessing in itself. That's and like you said, better food. I'm, well, better food for me, yes. <laughs> There's some cupcakes that I need to make. We have mixes up there, so I can actually get to them. There are cupcakes? Yes, I told you about that. I put in out the cupcakes that are in our cabinet that I have to make. It's Monday. Why do I not have more cupcakes? <laughs> okay, on that note, maybe we should take a break so we can talk about the cupcakes. When we come back, we'll have a shortened What's Eating Us segment. And then we'll get to the highlight of today's podcast, our interview with Ariel D. Smith of the Food Truck Scholar Podcast. Yeah, we're going to get this live and then pop in with her. <laughs> so we're going to be right back after a brief break, but you're listening to The Gourmet Goober. guys, this is JJ Outlaw. And T. Outlaw. And we're the co-hosts with the Gourmet Goober podcast with a very important question. Are you a little gourmet or a lot wretched? <laughs> or maybe you consider yourself gumbo worthy. Hey, if the answer is yes to any of those questions, then you need to tell the world with your very own Goober swag. From mugs and aprons to t-shirts and sweatshirts, it's the perfect way to show your love for the Gourmet Goober podcast and, you know, help us keep the lights on in the process. <laughs> so if you are a little bit gourmet and a lot ratchet, head on over to gooberswag.com. That's gooberswag.com. And get your very own Goober gear today. Tell them Big Daddy sent you. That's right. Tell them. Hey, guys. This is JJ Outlaw. And she Outlaw. And we are back for our segment that we call What's Eating Us here on the Gourmet Gooper Podcast. And this week we have three stories um, that covers the intersection of food and pop culture that we know that you would probably want to hear about. So first up is actually something that just relatively happened, what, within the last couple of days? Yes. And I'll be honest, Big Daddy and I, we talked about whether or not we we're going to cover it. But it's something I think is pretty relevant. Um, and that is, you may have heard of the controversy around Goya Foods. Yes. So Goya Foods, if you, first of all, if you're not familiar with Goya Foods, they are a company um, that largely markets to um, a mostly Latinx and Hispanic base. Um, it's food... Um, that it's actually hella good. <laughs> we have Goya in our cabinet right now. Yes, we do. <laughs> um, everything from seasoning, which their adobo seasoning is life, y'all, um, to black beans and rice and um, just a lot of traditional, really great um, food that runs with a traditional Latinx and Hispanic base. So the controversy comes to where... Um, last Thursday, the CEO of Goya Foods um, basically um, appeared doing a press conference at the White House. He showed up. 
and voice his support for President, um, the current president. Number 45. Number 45. Um, and as you can imagine, this was highly controversial, particularly with some of the um, current administration's decisions that um, affect individuals, particularly um, immigrants um, from Latinx countries and things that he said in the past about people from Mexico and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly Mm -hmm. the controversy around building the wall and some of the um, stereotypes that sometimes goes into effect um, that he has openly discussed and embraced. And as a result, there is now a call for a nationwide boycott. You may have seen it either boycott Goy or hashtag Goya way mm-hmm. um, on Twitter, because obviously people see his support for the president as a portrayal of some of the challenges that those communities have been facing over the past three years. Um, and a lot of people have been really, really vocal about it. I know that you and I had discussed um People like Julian Castro has mentioned it. Anna Navarro, who is a CNN analyst, she actually went as far as saying um, if you are going to boycott this, she certainly plans to do that. But encouraging people to not throw away the food, because as we mentioned in the first segment, there are so many people who are struggling with food insecurity right now, but telling them to donate them to shelters and other organizations that provide food for those most in need. Also, Representative Luis Gutierrez. Yes. And has uh, spoken out about it as well. So it's taken a life of its own. And it's very fascinating because a lot of people in general may not be familiar with the Goya brand, which, again, seriously, if you have a chance to try a Dopo seasoning, get your life. It's really good. Yeah. That's the thing. Like with a lot of Goya products, You've seen it on a lot of shelves. I mean, it's all over the country and in other countries, but you generally see it in a lot of different markets, but definitely you passed by it. You know, it's just some people have used a great deal of it. Some people, maybe not as much. And I know that that's led to a lot of discussions in families because it's been such a staple in communities um, for just over a generation and just figuring out what they're going to do with that product. I know that in our conversations, we've even talked about, because again, I openly admit I shop Goya all the time. I first was introduced to them when I lived in Tampa after I got out of grad school Mm -hmm. and Tampa has a very vibrant um, Cuban community. Um, they even have this place that's beautiful and amazing called Ybor City that I just love. And a lot of my friends that I met when I first moved there introduced me to like the yellow rice and all of the stuff that have become staples in our house. And I readily use it whenever I make Cuban sandwiches or ropa, uh, ropa, um, ropa vieja. Um, so roll those ours. <laughs> so we have to talk about like, are we going to get rid of the adobo seasoning that I just tracked down because they have like a low sodium one that's hard to find, but it's one that I really love, um, just for health and other things. Right. And I I know that other people 
have been struggling with the same thing. So Anna Navarro, going back to her, she actually put out this really great video where she talks about replacements. And I know there's a Badia brand, and I've actually seen in the stores that I haven't tried yet. Okay. That she recommends, um, which is kind of interesting. Um, so I, I guess the question is, and we'll just touch on it briefly before going on to other topics. I mean, what do you think about boycotting as a way of food brands? Because I know that, you know, some people say, well, this is, you know, kind of cutting into his freedom of speech. But on the other hand, this is a very um, loyal segment of the population that buys his products. Yes. That he basically ignored and Satan those things. So he had to expect a pushback, right? He did. That's the thing. Loyalty to a brand is a thing. And as such, every person is free to do what they want with said products. I guess in my mind, the best thing I can say is that we are right now during a pandemic, during a movement behind uh, demanding what we want. We've been doing that for years, but we're ba- we're basically in canceled culture, and he the sorry the founder and president of Goya and his support for the current administration, <coughs> excuse me, uh, has been as he let himself to be that you were hey you can voice whatever support you have. Trust me, there are people that have run under the canceled culture. Uh, emblem that you know we as in the black community have you know come across too but I guess in terms of you know using the products we do have a lot of products in our house uh, from Goya and I mean I'm willing to show support for the those who are not feeling this uh you know, showing the products, you know, they love the products is one thing, but they're like, okay, we're throwing out the Goya products or we're donating them. That's fine. Our thing is we've already given them the money. So we're going to use the current products in our house. But me personally, I'm like, hey, past that point, we'll just see how the fallout continues. So, And you know what? That's interesting because we watched Jesus and Meryl last night. Um, it's a really great show on Showtime. Um hosted by Jesus Nice and the Kid Marrow. And they basically voiced the same thing about just grandfathering in what you have. Um, if you are not in a place that you can donate it and then look for alternatives. Um, if Jesus Nice and Kid Marrow want to like, you know, want to rap to us, you know, <laughs> we're definitely willing to talk to you, but Hey, <laughs> it's a thing. But, um, but yeah, I, I certainly support Anna's idea because there are so many people that are food insecure right now. And I know working for an organization that I readily take requests for people who are looking for foods, particularly if they're escaping domestic violence um, situations. Mm -hmm. So yes. So I would encourage any listeners who are really considering doing that instead of tossing the food away um, to give that, to those who are really struggling and need it right now um, as a way to kind of help two communities at the same time. 
Um, but yeah, I can certainly understand the solidarity and we just wanted to talk about it briefly because one, it's really been trending in pop culture, but two, a lot of people, um, even though I don't self-identify as either Hispanic or Latinx, I'm fairly loyal to the Goya products because that's what I was introduced to many, many years ago. And so like you, I'm going to be looking for a replacement, um, particularly for the adobo. Yeah, never going to give you up, never going <laughs> to let you down. So the next thing that we go into is actually something else that's been a little bit of a surprise. And that is in regards to, for those of you who live in communities that um, you're close to what is known as a big boy, um, big you, boy. you may have noticed that the big boy restaurant it's looking a little less big boyish, at least temporarily. <laughs> what? And yeah, buddy. The big boy chain, if you guys aren't familiar with it, um, and let me just say, because in researching the story, I've always said they were Frisch's big boys because Frisch's, which is the original franchise owner, um, they're the ones who started the big boy chain. I believe they're out of Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay. And my exposure to it was when I visit family in Ohio. So everything was Frisch's Big Boys at that point many years ago. So I'm in the habit of saying it. So let me just say, as I go to the story, there are Frisch's Big Boys and then there are Big Boy restaurants not associated with Frisch, who basically license out the name. And see, that's the thing that I guess I'm learning right now, because when I have thought about big boys all i think about are the big boys in michigan so right that's the, the big boy restaurants without the fresh without the fresh <laughs> are the ones that i know i didn't know if there was a fresh's big boys right until this story so anyway this only affects those who live in places like michigan and i believe there are some big boys not fresh's big boys in indiana and um, they're just all across the country, and you know them because you've probably seen their iconic um, mascot of the little boy with the funky curl in his hair holding up the ginormous sandwich with the checkered um, suit. Um, so That's the one, yeah. Uh, somewhere <laughs> the goober has a picture that I took of her with the, the big boy with the funky hair. Somewhere we actually have a big boy in here. Like the actual little thing. Because remember, whenever we went to Michigan, I would hunt one down. Yes. Because their burgers are iconic and they are really good. But going back to the story, they're temporarily changing their mascot. So they're no longer the big boy chain for temporarily. They're Dolly. Dolly. Yes, Dolly. Hello, um, Dolly. <laughs> Hello, Dolly. So they're changing their marketing strategy in order to introduce a character by the name of Dolly. Um, Dolly actually isn't new. She actually has been part of the big boy um, franchise for a while. But according to the big boys director of training, Dolly, who first appeared in the 1950s as part of the ad campaign for the big boy, they, um, she initially was, his best friend and now she is actually going to be big boy's mascot as they roll out a chicken sandwich 
So a lot of people have been confused because of the fact that Dolly, who's been on their coloring books and coloring pages, she is now going to be the face of the big boy. How do you work with a big boy without the big boy? (laughs) So that's a good question because big boy has been the mascot of that franchise for about 84 years. And as you can imagine, for people in the communities that have the big boy chain, they have been hella confused regarding who the heck is Dolly and why is Dolly getting um, a replacing the big boy? Yeah, I keep feeling like, is big boy about to join cancel culture? <laughs> what did big boy do <laughs> to get himself in this position? Well, you know, I heard that big boy had been cheating on Dolly with, like, the people over at like um mm-hmm. Wendy's. So <laughs> Ooh, hold on, Chef Fire. <laughs> maybe Big Boy and Wendy's have been hanging out. Maybe you know, maybe Dolly or Big Boy has been using Goya products. So this is something that's temporarily and it's affecting all of their Michigan locations, Cleveland locations, there's some in Downey, California and Northridge. They even set up a site that's called whoisdolly.com. Mm. And it's again to roll out their chicken sandwich, which I have to say looks hella good. Um, they actually even gave free copies of or free versions of the sandwich. Um, they gave that out on July the sixth, so just a couple of days ago. And I even love their hashtag. They tried to make it run by saying it's a big clucking deal. <laughs> Ooh, nice, nice way to be ironic. So what do you think about Bob's Big Boy at least even temporarily jettison their 84-year-old mascot and place of Dolly? Well, I mean, like I said, I'm you know new to the Big Boy or Fish's Big Boy's like, you know, concept because all I know is the traditional Big Boy that's in Michigan. I guess, you know, as we once again are going through Spaces where there are changes to things such as, as we said, Uncle Ben's and more prominently Aunt Jemima. I know that these are all for different reasons, but I guess maybe a little bit of change will do you good at the same time. All I know is the big boy. All I remember growing up and visiting different places was big boy. So it will be an adjustment, but... As long as they do it the right way, I can live with it. So I'm good. Well, in researching this, I also learned some really interesting things about the Big Boy brand. Okay. So one, Bob, Bob, there was actually a Bob. And Bob was Bob C. Wyan. And he opened the first Big Boy franchise in Glendale, California in 1936. Okay. At the time, it was a tiny tin stool um, place that was called Bob's Pantry, and it was built for $350, where he sold his car at the time in order to actually fund the place. The red rust bucket. And Bob is the originator of the double-decker burger. So if you happen to enjoy Big Macs, you can actually thank Bob for that. In 1937, he joked with a friend, and he wanted to come up with something different. He came up with a a burger with two patties and a middle bun for good measure. He thought it was funny, but his customers thought it was genius. And so the first double-decker sandwich was actually born. See, 
their big match. <laughs> We're the big mix. <laughs> We're the big mix. Actually, they both are <laughs> cheating off of Bob. It's the big Bobs. <laughs> That's right. So the original big boy was actually based on a six-year-old. So there was actually a six-year-old that the big boy design was from. Actually, it was a little boy by the name of Rick Rudolph. Um, he was one of the most loyal customers that was so obsessed with the burgers, he offered to sweep up the restaurant in exchange for a free one. And sounds like baby, you know, like from Bob's Burgers, it sounds like a baby teddy. So get this, another regular of the Bob's Big Fur ch Burger chain was a movie animator okay. who drew a cartoon that was inspired by Rick. The cartoon stuck and Woodruff lived up to the big boy name um, by growing into, according to Thrillist, a six point six foot six, three hundred pound man. Good, good mighty. <laughs> okay, so big boy grew Went up to be a big boy. Yes. Eventually, the Bob of Bob's Big Boy became the mayor of Glendale, California, which is kind of interesting. Okay. And yeah. the Beatles have their own booth at the original Bob's Big Boy. Really? Yes. So there's a plaque found at one of the Burbank Cal location booths that explained that the Beatles dined at Bob's Big Boy um, on the summer of 1965, just as the movie Help was released in the United States. The plaque also lists two of the album's hits in case this is the first year hearing of the Beatles, I guess. But but yeah. And the movie Heat was actually filmed at a big boy. Hmm. Okay. Which is the Burbank one. This is some weird, wild stuff here. I'm, I'm learning some really intelligent things about the big boy franchise. Oh, dude. And the last thing is maybe we should find that big boy thing that I say is floating around here. Because apparently the merchandise from Bob's Big Boy could actually make you rich. Really? Yes. In the season three episode of Storage Wars, two of the people on the show, Brandy and Jared, um, they buy a whole mess of Bob's Big Boy merchandise. And they consult it with a restaurant expert. They learned that they could turn a tidy profit, um, particularly from the retro hand-painted Big Boy, which goes for 300 to $350 a pop. Is that right? So I'm thinking we should probably look for the big boy. <laughs> so to our audience at the Gourmet Goober, um, pardon the next uh, few minutes or hours. <laughs> We're um, going to be destroying the house looking for the big boy toy that yeah, we have floating around here. Some, there will be a little restructuring going on <laughs> in the house. Yeah, because I think we even have like a, I even have like a big boy t-shirt, but. I'm sure that's not the same. I got that from Target. <laughs> that's that's right. Uh, excuse me while I pardon my mess. <laughs> so the last thing very briefly that we wanted to talk about before the interview is something that is kind of hilarious that's been going around social media. And it asked the simple question, are you cake? Okay. Is this cake? <laughs> okay. If you can see the gourmet goose face right now, she's really excited to talk about this. Well, it's something that's hilarious. So you guys may have seen on social media over the past few days a video that was first released by BuzzFeed's Tasty Brand. Okay. Um, and it is a pitch. It was a short video of what looks like normal everyday household items from like toilet paper to 
hand sanitizer to Croc shoes and someone taking a knife to it. And as it turns out, every one of those items that looks hella realistic in that video mm-hmm. was all cake. I don't understand why you would <laughs> cut into toilet paper and say, hey, is this cake? I don't understand why you would make toilet paper into cake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It sounds weird to me, but hey, whatever you can do with fondant and, you know, your spare time, hey, that's something you do. So it actually kind of blew up from the time that they posted that. Um, Everyone from, you know, Vice to I even Time Magazine, and that's how I found out about it where they explain that it's causing people to like totally freak out their reality because they're looking at this cake replica. Um, In case you're wondering, the cakes that are in the video was actually created by a Turkish food artist by the name of Tuba Kukel, who shares her work with Red Rose Cakes on Instagram. Um, Her phenomenal work transforms everything to she has a cake version of like Angela Merkel um, from Germany to a plate of raw chicken, which I've seen the raw chicken cake. That looks revolting. But she does have even a version of the famous painting, um, Jant Vermeer's The Girl with the Pearl Earring. And it's all edible versions of it. And so the video took on a life of its own to where people are actually responding in the most bizarre ways. So like, for example, someone tweeted on Twitter, the year is 2030. Bakery art is so realistic, literally, that anything could be cake. This uncertainty has gripped the world in fear. I go to grip my, hug my wife for, <laughs> for comfort. She is cake. <laughs> Wait a minute, hold on. Are you cake? I am not cake. He's you, actually squeezing me right now. Are you chocolate? <laughs> yeah, you look a little mocha here. So it's traumatizing people to the point where people are like freaking out. Some people are like, okay, is this real or is it cake? Is your hair cake? <laughs> I admit, when this first came out, I looked at you and like, hey, we've known each other for 20 years, so you have to tell me if you're a cake, right? <laughs> right. Is the baby Yoda cake? No, the baby Yoda certainly is not cake. Okay. Now I'm intrigued. What else is cake here? <laughs> if our cat wasn't moving, I would say it would be cake too. I personally love, there's a tweet. Um, there's someone by the name of Marcus who tweeted that Marcus. Proof, proof that the earth is actually a cake. And so he breaks it down so that the first perimeter, um, what we see as the surface is blue and green fondant followed by carrot cake, which is the part that's lava. Inside, there's a good portion of coffee cake, orange sponge cake, and then inside, it's a lemon drizzle. That is quite (laughs) in-depth. Once again, this is some weird, wild stuff. I'm just learning some crazy stuff here. So, just thinking on an existential level, first of all, is there anything realistic that you would see that you would not want to be a cake? Because, like, I have to say, I've I've seen the one where there's, like, even a raw turkey and someone make a cake out of that, and I cannot. I, I just, if you serve me a slice of that, 
you and I can't be friends. I just, it literally looks revolting. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how, there are so many different things in the world. I don't want to be cake. Like, you know, if I walk in here and I see on a table, you know, a raw looking rib, because, you know, gotta have a, you know, a good rib. If I cook this thing and it's not a real rib, I'm going to be quite angry. But yeah, like rib, want to make sure like, you know, none of the pets look like cake or, you know, something else raw, like oh. you said, the chicken. Yeah. If someone made a cake version of like our pets, no. Although I've seen people do that. I've seen people do that in, this is so creepy. I've seen a lot of people at baby reveal parties or mm-hmm. like baby showers do like cakes that look like babies. No, I, I just, that is just an exercise and just cruelty. I, I can never. So this, I know this is completely unrelated, but you know, like around Mardi Gras when they have, what was it, the king cake that has a baby in it? Yeah, but that's different. It's like a little toy baby. It's not like you actually slice into the baby. Even though, okay, so the baby that's in the king cake, right. is it edible? No, it is not edible. See, that's the thing that needs to be cake. You know, put a baby in the cake. But since you put it in a cake, I think it should be edible. So, thus, that should be cake. See, power to the people. That's why I'm, uh, that's my new platform now. Make the baby that's in the king cake an actual cake. Because, you know, it would confuse me. I'd be like biting the head off babies, thinking it's cake or candy or something. And it's not real. And it's actually plastic. I would be very upset about that. But in terms of cake, that's what should be cake. Or candy or something. Work on that. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> so Excuse I me as I get off my platform. I haven't really put that much thought into the cake. Okay. And now I'm a little disturbed by that. <laughs> I think it's a good idea. <laughs> I think that's that's my platform, so that's what I'm standing on. Anyway. I, I, I think I would draw the line of cake that looks like our baby or like anyone I know or any raw food. Like, I cook so much with, like, chicken and, like, other forms of protein. Mm. I, I wouldn't be able to handle that. If it looked like you, I would not be able to handle that. Yeah, cutting into somebody's face. That no. would look, yeah, that would freak me completely out. Yeah, because, like, I don't know, like, I've seen, like, Kylie Jenner, like, her daughter, she had, like, this, like, big birthday party where people, like, went into, like, a. it was, like, this tent that looked like her daughter's head and her mouth was open. And okay. then they had, like, little cakes. And I'm just, like, okay, that is just horrifying. Yeah, I'm horrified just thinking the, mis- <laughs> the mistake in that sentence was oh Kylie Jenner and okay. such. The mistake was mentioning the Kardashians to the Jenners at all. Okay. But <laughs> yes, that's an example of like something that I just couldn't wrap my brain around. But the important thing is knowing that after over twenty years of being together, I can assuredly know that you are not cake, right? Yes, I am very much not cake. <laughs> Good. If I was, I'd be, yeah, <laughs> we're just going to go ahead and say, I am not cake. Okay, good, good. As as long as we have that understanding, I think we we can still coexist. How did this 
completely fall off the rails. <laughs> it falls off the rails every time. Okay. So I tell you what, we're going to take a quick break now that we've determined that we are not cake. Mm. <laughs> and when we come back on the highlight of the show, you'll be able to hear our interview with Ariel D. Smith. And you're listening to the Gourmet Goober podcast. We will be right back. Do you know who struggles with creating ideas? People who are actually creative. But do you know what really sucks about being a struggling creative? It's that frustration of starting a new skill, the unbearable phase of being stuck with new ideas, and of course, never knowing when or even how to make a profit from your ideas. You know that feeling, being a jack of all trades, but master of none. Well, the Conscious Creative Corner podcast is the podcast where real creatives share their secret formulas on how to be irresistibly profitable in their field. So that way you can be a jack of all trade and a master of your money. So if you're ready to leave behind the frustration and exhaustion of not knowing how to live profitably, head on over to the Conscious Creative Corner podcast, where you can gain the skills you need to be a successful magnetic creative. Find it now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Anchor FM. This is JJ Outlaw. And T Outlaw. And we are back with the third segment of the Gourmet Goober podcast. And today, as we had talked about it in the beginning of the show, we are welcoming an incredible guest that I can't wait for you all to learn more about. Her name is Ariel D. Smith. And Ariel is the host of the Food Truck Scholar podcast. Now, she's originally a Birmingham native, and right now she is studying. Um, American Studies as a doctoral student at um, Purdue University. Yeah. And the really cool thing is, and this is why I've just been obsessed with her, is her research is actually focused on the economic and community impact of Black-owned um, food trucks, um, which I think it's amazing. Food trucks? Yes, food trucks. Nice. <laughs> I like food trucks. Yes, I'm aware they really love food trucks. We could go on and on about that as well as our obsession with that. But Ariel, hey, welcome to Google. I'm so excited to, to be show. here, so thank you for having me. <laughs> well, great. Well, again, first of all, I always like to make sure I got your bio right. There's just so much incredible stuff that you've done. She's also an an author, by the way. In fact, I think it's what mm-hmm. Cuisine Noir that you yes, yes. well. And you've done a lot of great academic research as yeah, well. Yeah, and I still got some more to go. So I actually just submitted the first draft of my dissertation prospectus, which is actually the proposal to write the dissertation. I turned that in three days ago. So my fingers have been happy and tired. <laughs> Well, first of all, as someone who used to work in higher education, particularly with graduate level students, let me just say all the thank congratulations you, thank for you, that. Thank you. Oh, I could just run a lap right now. Thank you. Ooh, I bet. <laughs> 
Well, I truly learned about a lot about the food truck industry from listening to your podcast. Can you share with the audience where your love of food trucks first came? Oh, wow. You know, I get that question a lot because, you know, I don't have a food truck. Um, No one in my family actually runs a food truck, but everybody in my family loves food. And everybody in my family, especially my great aunt, that's who raised me as a child, she was always a big supporter of Black business, of Black street uh, entrepreneurship as well. And so I can remember being like four or five years old and I was at the daycare center that she was the director of at the point. And there would be uh, guys in trucks that had fruits and vegetables and she would buy it from them. And they knew to come to the center because they knew that she was going to support them. I remember just going down the street sometimes in Birmingham, down Third Avenue West, and there would be people from the Nation of Islam, they would sell the newspapers and she would buy them. Wouldn't always read them, but she constantly buy them because she said, we got to support black. We got to buy black. And so I always have had this attraction to black business and black street entrepreneurship in particular. And I've always loved food. Growing up, I've had every cooking thing known to man. So of course I had my little play kitchen from Fisher Price. I had the little play food, but then I had the real food, which excited me more than anything else, JJ. So no, nah, I'm for real. So everybody had the easy bake oven, but my auntie outdid everybody. I had the easy bake oven. I had the chicken cheese pizza oven. I had the real meal oven. I had the Baskin Robbins ice cream uh, maker, the ice cream bar maker, the ice cream cake maker. Um, she started getting me the pretzel maker, the fudge maker. And that's when I realized that it wasn't always about me. It was about her also wanting to eat. <laughs> it was at that moment. Cause I remember saying, Reese, I was like, Reese, I don't eat fudge. She said, yes, you do. It's good. I said, I never ate fudge. Fudge good for you. We're going to buy it. So at that, <laughs> at that moment, I realized it wasn't always about me. But I love the creativity that came from it. I love uh, seeing something in one form. You put it in this oven, this machine or whatnot, and it comes out in this other form and it's pretty and it's fun. And I know it's all over the place, but all of these different experiences get me to the food truck, including going to the fair and being in love with the carnival food that you get to have that you can't get nowhere else. And and so like all of these different experiences to me, when I see a food truck, I think about all of that. I think about going to the fair and the way that they present the food is different. It's bizarre. It's odd. It's unique. It's creative. It's fun. It's also the ability just to see one thing presented one way and it comes out another different style. It's also their street vendors. And I think about my aunt how she supported black street food vendors, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s when I'm coming up, I see that as the newest iteration of that same movement. And so for me, it just ties in all of those experiences together. And I know I'm rambling, but like, that's the only way I could really try to answer that question for you. Oh, no. First of all, you are not rambling. Although I have to say, I'm kind of dying (laughs) laughing over the idea of re- the realization when it hits that this is not just about it you. Was it was not about <laughs> just me. So it was about me when I got the Chuck E. Cheese pizza oven. And it was about me with the... Now, now here's, here's the problem with that. So we get the easy bake oven. Okay. And, you know, at first, it's all well and good. 
But then we have a problem, right? Because I start wanting to buy more of the kits that come with it. And she's like, ah, uh-uh, girl, that's too high. I ain't spending all that money on that. No, we're not going to do that. But she had money to get the donut maker. She had money to get the fudge maker. <laughs> she had money to get, I had a gummy worms maker, y'all. Ooh, I had all Goodness. She put you on two curriculum. Listen, listen. So in other words, you had listen, had all of them. She didn't have the money to get me like Easter Bake Oven had the little cake, and you had the little heart cutter, and you can put like the little vanilla cake heart into the chocolate cake, and vice versa. She didn't have the money for that because she said it was too high. But somehow, all these other makers were within the budget, <laughs> and I straight up said, "I don't need this. I want this." She said, "Yes, you do." You don't know what you need. <laughs> and at that moment, I was like, this is a bigger situation than me. And because I'm the child in the house that you're raising, you are putting it on me. But, you know, <laughs> I'm still a, a slightly salty about that Easy Bake Oven uh, mix. <laughs> you know? Just a Just a reboot. I completely understand. But it put my love for food in, so I thank her for it. <laughs> Well, I can certainly understand that. I mean, growing up, my father was the one who taught me how to cook. And it was one of those things where, you know, as a child, once you get your groove on, there's certain things that you want to make, which sadly for me was cakes and probably things I didn't want to (laughs) eat or shouldn't have eaten. (laughs) Oddly enough, when it was my turn to cook with him, it always included vegetables and things. It was just like, okay, this is just way too many green stuff on this plate. But now as an adult, I have to say I'm completely obsessed with it. So <laughs> sometimes it hits you later on in life. But yeah, I I I, I related on a deeper level than you Yo. know, talking about the what is this? And why Yo, I have to make it. It's a whole new lifestyle, man. <laughs> whole new lifestyle. <laughs> well, I really love the fact that your research, as I mentioned before, is focused on the food truck being a, an agent of change in communities of color especially Black communities, because they drive economic and cultural development. So just curious, um, where did this hypothesis come from and how did it originally I'm going to be hot, open, and transparent on that one. It came out of a moment of hangerness. That's when you are hungry and angry. <laughs> and as a... <laughs> as, oh, my God. Angry as a millennial that I am, you know, some of my best ideas come while I'm in the shower pondering what my life is and what I have not done yet. And I come out the shower, I get on Instagram and I'm searching through and all of my friends back home in Birmingham, they're posting all of these plates that's loaded with food about this food truck and that food truck from Granny's Fish and Grits and Encore Rouge and K&J's Elegant Pastries. And I'm seeing all these food trucks and they are elaborate. Like there's food running out the plant. And I was like, now, wait a minute. I didn't get Birmingham 23 years of my life. 23 good years, might I add. And I don't recall seeing these food trucks there when I was there. Now, they may have been, and I didn't see them. I'm not saying that they weren't. I'm just saying that in addition to those food trucks, more and more started coming up. And as a Native daughter, I felt disrespected. And so I wanted to know why were all these food trucks, and more specifically, these Black-owned food trucks, appearing in this moment. So this is like 2017 around that time. And 
I went and I started doing what, you know, as a doctoral student and a grad student, I'm trying to do is you Google it, figure out what what's the context. Well, Birmingham is going through gentrification in many different spaces. Could it have been that because property rates were going up, could it have been that these black entrepreneurs couldn't necessarily afford the price? And so what they did, the next best thing is to get a food truck where they can be mobile and still tap into this new economic opportunity because there's different clientele and different customers with different incomes and whatnot. And they're trying to, you know, capitalize on that. So that's where it originally came from was that question. Uh, was out of my hunger and wanting to know why um, all of this food was coming up when I had left Birmingham. So that became the initial question. And it was just something in my head. And I just went to different library databases and trying to see if there's anything about food trucks and gentrification. And there was a couple of articles, but there wasn't a whole lot. And it was specifically talking about uh, food trucks in the Latinx community, specifically in South LA. There was work about when white food trucks or white owned food trucks enter um, black spaces or other spaces of communities of color, that that is a sign of gentrification. But there was nothing that was talking about black owned food trucks. And so I kind of just dismissed it at that moment and continued getting ready for my day until I came to class and my professor looked at all of us and said, so how are those midterm projects going? And we all, not just me now, but we all in the classroom looked at him like, uh, how about we haven't started? And he said, you know what, exactly. this is our first year at Purdue. We're first year grad students. We're nervous. We don't know what's going on. And he says, you know what, how about you don't worry so much about your dissertation? I know that's what you're thinking about is that whatever you write has to be your dissertation. Just write me eight to 10 pages about a question that you have. And I said, bet, that's the question I got. I had this question since this morning. That's what we running with. And I wrote it. And he said, you know, that sounds like a really good idea. And I looked at him. I said, Really? Really now? And so, <laughs> really now? And I just stuck with it. And I've, it's ebbed and it's flowed and it's morphed and developed, but I kept it from that day. And you know, that's really fascinating because I'm surprised that there hasn't been a lot more research that has been done on the topic, especially when you think about how food appropriation and gentrification are all tied together, um, especially in communities of color. And so this is just really an ingenious idea. The thing about it is that, and I I like to be transparent, I haven't seen academic scholars talk about um, Black food trucks necessarily, but I have seen like some journalists start talking about it. But not necessarily always from the context of gentrification or uh, hip hop culture, which I've also looked into. Um, It's really, honestly, a lot of that scholarship has been centered around our Mexican-American counterparts. And understandably so for many reasons, because when we look at uh, the food truck, we can really trace that back to like 1974 with uh, Raul Martinez. He took an ice cream truck and he turned it into a taco truck or a lonchetta and he parked it outside of a, um, a nightclub or a bar. And that's kind mm-hmm. of 
where that lineage comes from. So if people love food trust like I do, then they probably know of or read or would like to read the book Food Trucks, Cultural Identity and Social Justice that came out in August of 2017. This is the first book of its kind, really, to really go in depth about linking food trucks with gentrification, with racism, with uh, specifically xenophobia. Um, but interestingly enough, that book really doesn't talk about uh, the plight, the success, the strategies of African-American-owned food trucks, even though there's a chapter that's about New Orleans, it really doesn't flesh out the relationships of Black food trucks. It's a conversation about Black second-line street vending, which is important, but we also right. have that conversation about Black food truck owners. And so when I was reading that book, I said, hmm, this, this was just further confirmation that this question I had, although it was birthed out of hanger, it really does have a greater um, purpose and a greater space to fill in that conversation. Okay. This is uh, Tiala jumping in. Uh, how far have you gotten into your PhD program and so far through the curriculum? What has been the most surprising thing that you have learned in doing your research? Oh, man. So I will be starting my fourth year uh, this August. And when it hit me last week, I was like, man. I'm about to be gone. Oh my God, I gotta get on. I gotta get a job. <laughs> get it real. So I'm at the phase where the first two years you do coursework, and then after your coursework, right. you have what's mm. called your preliminary exams. And in my program, you have three fields, fifty topics, approximately. You get three questions. You write an essay per question. You have 24 hours to turn it back around, and you defend what you wrote on the following Monday. So I did that. Uh, in February, defended that literally eight days before Rona hit and shut everything down. And oh, now man. I'm at the part where you write your proposal. So this isn't the dissertation, but it's you outlining what your dissertation is going to be about. So I'm at that phase right now. I just turned in the draft and hopefully within the next couple of weeks, I will get revisions or suggestions on revisions, make those revisions, we'll set a date, and then I will defend that proposal. Once you defend that proposal, you'll be at a status that's called ABD, which is all but dissertation. And from that moment, you'll begin writing your dissertation. Then you defend the dissertation. And once it's done successfully, you can be Dr. Ariel so-and-so. So that's kind of where I'm at. I'm more near the end than the beginning at this point. Um, and as for the second part of your question, which was, uh, what was I finding the most surprising? Honestly, I never thought that I would be studying this topic. I, I came into my program with an entirely different research trajectory, research idea that I was going to do. And if anybody told me that I would be studying food trucks right now, I wouldn't have believed it. <laughs> and I didn't think it could be something that could be studied, honestly, coming in. And now I realize you can, and I am. <laughs> well, as someone who used to work with graduate students, let me just say, I hear that story of, I've never thought that I'd be studying this topic. That happens more often than you think. So <laughs> I think you're right in home with that. Um, 
one of the things that I was telling Big Daddy about when I first learned about your podcast was I was telling him about your study of the food truck industry. And you, you hit upon it a little bit earlier and when we were speaking about its cultural ties to hip hop, which I have to say, I was really surprised to learn. So can you share a little bit about the synergy that exists yeah. between now, the two? Yeah, now, when we think about hip-hop, we can think about the elements, you know, break dancing, uh, graffiti art, which is aerosol spray paint, goes a little bit before hip-hop, your, your DJing, your MCing, like all of that, like we beatboxing, we can think about that. But we don't think about food, and we should. So let me take you all the way back, Rapper's Delight, that last verse it's all about what do you do oh, when you yeah. go to your friend's house and mama cooked the food nasty? Are you going to jeopardize the friendship or your stomach? And he said, I'm jeopardizing the friendship. It's all about, <laughs> you know, but it's all about food. Like food was so important to him. It was like, I'm going to risk it all because I'm not going to deal with this food. Yes. But also it's in the language. So KRS-One in 2003 put out an album, got a song on it called Nine Elements, where he expands it beyond the four or five that we normally think about to talk about street entrepreneurship, to talk about uh, street language, street knowledge, all of that. So we're going through that framework, if you will, and we're talking about language. We always say we got beef with somebody. Food. You got ice on my neck. Yes. You got dances, chicken noodle soup. You got Gucci man with lemon pepper wings in a freeze cup. When you compliment somebody, you look like a whole meal. You look like a snack. Like all of these different type of food in your windows. And then we got to think about how you have people who are in the hip hop music industry um, that are getting into food. Khalees had a whole album called Food, pulled up to an award show in a food truck. Now has a TV show. Got a whole like farm and ranch out in London. So you got Snoop Dogg that does a little bit of everything. And he got his own like wine label right now, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, He did the whole cooking show with Martha Stewart. So so you have these different uh, moments where you've seen the hip hop industry cross over into food. But now you're seeing the reverse where food trucks are going into hip hop. So if you're on YouTube, there's a video from uh, First We Feast about the Food Minati. It's a group of uh, black men in South LA, excuse me, that they've started different food trucks. Some of them were affiliated with different gangs, Bloods, Crips. Some of them were selling drugs, all of that, but they flipped their lives around through food. Um, And they are doing amazing work in the community as well. And when they come together and they are doing events, they said in the video, you would think it was a rapper or artist that's here because the lines are wrapped around the block. Ceasefires have happened because of the work that they're doing. But also you even have album covers now that are celebrating food. So YG dropped an album last May, if I'm not mistaken, and the lead single on it was Go Loco. To promote that, they took Taco Mel, who is part of the Food Minati in L.A., wrapped a truck, a food truck, with YG's album cover and was giving out free tacos. Nice. Yeah. Nice. You got um, Rob uh, Glasper with the Fuck Your Feelings food truck. <laughs> you, you got... You know, <laughs> oh, you got, if, if you don't allow cussing, I'm so sorry, but that's exactly what the truck is all about. 
no, no, no. Right. All right. So that's exactly the name of the food truck. It was called Fuck Your Feelings. And if you're in the music industry, the hip-hop world, you know Rob Glasper. And it, it's it, the correlations had already been there. But just in the past year alone, as I started studying that, it was like, oh, my God, like y'all are reiterating my point. Like, thank you. And so it's, it's there. It's most definitely there. Nice, nice. All right. So you have a podcast, you know, that you put out to the world called The Food Truck Scholar, which does a great job of telling these diverse stories from within the industry. So having gone through a few, sorry, a few seasons of doing that, what has been the most, I don't know, dramatic, bananas, craziest story that you have come across like doing this podcast? Oh, it's one of my favorites. I interviewed Pastor Alex Davis in Tacoma, Washington. And I found his story because I was on, I think, Twitter and I saw a link about a food truck that had been stolen. It was a church food truck that got stolen and it was trying to find it. And so I was sharing this story, uh, hoping that either the truck could be found or uh, that they could raise the money to help get another one. And so I get connected to him. We're interviewing and it was the most real conversation that I've had in a while in the in that moment because here you have a pastor who's talking about all the things that he's doing in the community. Uh, this is a church he inherited from his father and, and like all of this great, you know, noble work, whatnot. And then we get to the moment where he actually encounters the person that has stolen the truck. <laughs> oh my God. He, he gets cool. to the moment and he was like, I was ready to lay hands on this brother. And I was like, I'm here for this. This is the time. We got to lay hands and it ain't no type of spiritual hands. Like I'm here for it. Here for it. Having a great time. It's great. Like we are laughing. (laughs) I'm so excited. He doesn't though. He kept his religion, but I was all here for it. And you know, it has its own twist where he goes from like, hey, me and you right now, we finna go at it, to then having some compassion because he finds out the backstory behind what happened. And so it was just one of those conversations where I was like, I could not have expected all of these plot twists to your story, but I'm here for all of them. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I just felt that for a second because you know <laughs> the anointing oils were crystal well, hot <laughs> exactly. like hey we're gonna yeah. lay hands <laughs> and now well, this, this weapon gonna prosper today I don't care what for heaven had to say <laughs> I'm just saying he was I, I, right Amen. No. (laughs) (laughs) And for those who are listening, I am going to be putting the link to her podcast in her show notes. Seriously, you guys, you got to hear it. It's it's just some really brilliant, um, really great work that you you do on the show. It really means a lot. 
Now, one of the recent shows that you did, your most recent shows, you had talked about the state of the food truck industry during the pandemic, which it's kind of something that's near and dear to my heart, having worked um, with a lot of restaurants back in the day when I used to do food tours. Um, I've built a lot of relationships with them. And I know that, as we all know, the restaurant industry has really been decimated. And I know the food truck industry has been hit particularly hard because some of the safety protocols and, you know, the issues with supply chain issues and getting access to food um, in order to make their meals. Um, Can you share a little bit with our audience what's the current state and how the pandemic has really affected the industry and how they've had to be, you know, flip some of the work that they do on a dime, if you will, in order to survive. Yeah, you know, on one hand, it's where the food truck is is positioned in a blessed space, but also a, a real stressed place in the sense that they are curbside to go by default. At the same time, so they were kind of built for this social distancing space that we're kind of in, in that particular sense. But you also have food trucks that were dependent upon that lunch scene in different in different corporate spaces and being outside so the employees could get their lunch and go right back. Um, they were also very hit very hard when it comes down to festivals. So many people remember the shock and the disappointment and devastation and just feelings of lostness when South by Southwest canceled. Like they didn't postpone, they canceled. And you have so many small businesses in the city of Austin that rely upon South by Southwest as estimated about $360 million uh, to Austin. Well, you have a lot of food truck owners that participate in that festival, uh, many of whom that is the income that they depend on to make it through the year. The problem wasn't just that they lost money because the festival canceled. The other problem was that they lost money because they put money down as a deposit to be at that festival months in advance that they did not insure. And because they did not insure it, because they never thought they would have to, they never thought South by Southwest would cancel because they never had in the past. Not only did they lose the money they anticipated, but they also anticipated to make that money back from that deposit at that festival. So now they're out of all the money and can't get it back. So that was one lesson that this uh, pandemic has taught us is to insure the deposit. Some of these deposits are $5,000, $10,000 that people just straight up lost. So that has been a challenge. It had been a challenge, like you said, to get access sometimes to certain ingredients. Everybody remembers the toilet tissue running out, but people also forget flour ran out. Yeast ran out because everybody started wanting to make bread from home for some reason when we still had bread. So, (laughs) you know, that was a challenge. But at the same time, there's also been some positives. There's also been that adaptation, if you will, that you was talking about in the sense of it pushed many food truck owners to go online, to set up that online presence, that online delivery services. Um, it pushed them to talk more about, you know, the sanitary steps that they take because food trucks still uh, are fighting to get out of that shadow of being seen as a quote unquote roach coach that they're not clean, they're not this, and they're not that. 
And they go through the same, sometimes even stricter policies when it comes down to cleanliness as a brick and mortar. They can get surprise, you know, inspections just like a brick and mortar can. They have to have a permit just like the brick and mortar can. And so, but they still have to challenge that. If you have one bad food truck that hasn't, you know, taken sanitary precautions right, it ruins it for a lot of the other food trucks, even though the same thing happens with brick and mortars. We don't necessarily have that same stigma associated with brick and mortars. So they're still fighting with that. So that was a moment for them to come on social media and outline what all the steps they were taking to get people who normally probably would not have gone to a food truck uh, to feel comfortable going to a food truck. I'm also saying this as a moment where there is a food truck uh, in Birmingham, uh, Panoptic, that just opened today and there are lines wrapped around to get to that truck. So we're starting to see um, them turn around. Uh, Some of the food trucks that I talked to in March that lost two months worth of income in a week are now booked solid. So it feels good. It's a turnaround now. It's looking into online delivery. Those who had not used social media a lot in the past now see how critical it is for them to use social media. We're seeing a rise in more apps that are coming up to help us find different restaurants and food trucks and having that exposure to food trucks is actually really good now. So they're taking advantage of those resources so that people who wanted to support food trucks and more specifically black owned food trucks, they now have a uh, one common location where they can do that. So even though I'm not sure when Auntie Rona is going to let us go outside to play, what I do, what I do feel pretty good about is that those who have been open to change and have had resources, because I do recognize not everyone has the resources to adapt, um, those who have had the resources to adapt, they have been able to do so. Well, my next bit, I guess, would be along with the uh, COVID pandemic response, we also had, at least the country did, the issues with um, blah, police brutality and protests behind it. So my thing is, well, how did that also affect the food truck industry? Because I can only speak from the Chicago side since I've been working at home. I've had a couple of people who just gotten back into working downtown and during the protests, there were... On one hand, a lot less food trucks, but also um, he told me that there were a couple of food trucks that made a lot of money on Dearborn and Franklin while they were protesting, literally during the protests in the middle of the loop. So my question to you is, in your response, how do you think that could also affect the food truck industry? That's a good question. So... I remember when the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor um, was first coming out on social media. And I remember seeing um, some of my favorite black owned restaurants and food trucks. Um, There's one in particular that is a food truck, but also has a brick and mortar in Durham. Um, They weren't impacted directly, but there was a friend of theirs. It was their neighbors. Their restaurant uh, received damage. So uh, Mm -hmm. there was that concern. 
so there has been the concern of like damage of property that there also, to your point, has been uh, people who are able to make money out during protests because, you know, you need food to keep the revolution going. Uh, so, and that has always been a thing. When we look at the trajectory of social movements, food has always been critical to that. So while, although I haven't seen a whole lot of stories on it, I'm not surprised by it because you had, um, people who were feeding those who were marching towards Washington, those who were on trains to Washington, DC for, uh, the March on Washington. So I'm not surprised by it. But what I have seen though, is more black owned food trucks speak up about what's happening. You know, um, so many times people expect them to just stay to the business, quote unquote, of making food. Like, don't tell me about what's, you know, killing you. Just feed me. Type of thing. And we're seeing many of them speak up and say, no, before I'm a business owner and before I'm a chef and before I'm this and I'm that, I'm black. And we got to talk about it. And I'm seeing many of them donate money to the cause. I'm seeing many of them pushing their following to sign uh, the petitions so we can get justice for the murder of Breonna Taylor. So I'm seeing it happen in many different ways, not just uh, those who are able to make money while they're you know, feeding people who are protesting. It's not just the ones um, who are experiencing damage to property or the hesitation of being able to get permits. We're also seeing some challenges with that too. And that's something that's not new, but we are seeing that. Um, I also want to bring attention to people that one thing that we haven't probably thought about is surveillance. So I want to say it was in 2014, I want to believe. And I, w- I want to say it was in Memphis. There was a um, a black cookout party, whatnot. And there was a food truck there. And we actually had uh, the police that were spying and surveillancing this all Black Lives Matter event. <laughs> and there was, you know, surveying the food truck owner that was black. So there's always this notion of surveillance that we need to think about as well. And you know what? I've never really thought of that as an issue, but you're right. And considering how food trucks are kind of like the perfect spot, you know, for social gatherings and things like that, it would be almost nothing for someone who's interested in surveillance to kind of weave into that um, setting in order to do so. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, but at the same time, police need to plate too. And then we're also seeing people... using the food truck to spur conversations about police brutality. So a couple of years ago, there was a black woman who had a food truck uh, that was not serving anybody who was a police officer in resistance to police brutality. Um, There's a chef, I'm blanking out on his name right now, but he's done so many different things around food to uh, spur conversations around injustice. He did a pop-up at one point and he would charge people of color a cheaper price than white people to show inequality and and talk about equity when it comes down to food and to be able to pay for things. And he also has been doing similar conversations with the food truck. And so those are also conversations that are happening with the food truck as it relates not just to uh, this current situation with police brutality, but also past ones as well. Right. Well, I really love that idea, using food as a mode of resistance, because you're right, it's the one uniform thing that we all need to 
to seeing ourselves and live. And so to be able to use that as a teaching moment, that's really powerful. Well, I wanted just to take a moment, first of all, Ariel, to say thank you so much for joining us. We are super excited that you have blessed us with (laughs) um, all these great stories and information. Um, First and foremost, if someone wanted to find um, more of your work, including the podcast, where can they find it? Okay, you can go to thefoodtruckscholar.com. Make sure you sign up for the mailing list. We have some exclusive things that I would like to get out to you. Uh, If you want to follow me on social media, on Instagram, it is thefoodtruckscholar.com. The same thing on Facebook and on Twitter. It is Food Truck Scholar. That's S-C-H-O-L-A on Twitter. All right. Awesome. And as always, you guys, I will put the links to everything in our show notes so you can easily click in and follow along. And then lastly, Ariel, one thing that we always do to end out our podcast is that we um, share what we call the best thing we ate this week. That's where it's home cooking recipes, restaurants, food trucks, um, just anything that you have eaten that has just been a blessing to your soul. Yes, so we normally um, or end it and we share it ourselves, but whenever we have a guest, We want you to have the last words. So can you share with our audience, what was the best thing that you had? Y'all, it's so good. I'm finna go make me a bowl of it right now. Blueberry cheesecake ice cream. (laughs) Y'all, if you making a face and you don't think that it's good, fix your face. It's good. No, 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 no. I'm I'm disimagining this. this It's blessed. Blueberry cheesecake ice cream, y'all. Mm. Who makes it? So there's a spot down here that's called Silver Dipper. That's where I, fe- I first met it and I fell in love then. But if you have a Kroger oh. um, anywhere near you, they have this private selection type of ice cream. And oh, I'm going to yes. try it right now to see if it upholds to standards of the cousin that, you know, try to see if, if this is just as good as his cousin, but they have what's called the main blueberry cheesecake ice cream. Sounds a little bougie. Cause they put that main part on it, but I'm going to see, I'm going to see what it do. Well, as a Hoosier native who grew up and born and raised in Indianapolis where Kroger's are plentiful, I can personally attest to the goodness that is Come on. the private select ice cream. <laughs> now, while I've never had that flavor, I can say that I've gotten my life to many of their other flavors that they have. So hopefully you are in for You a know good what? Night. I'm going to text you and let you know. You'll find out. <laughs> I definitely want to hear that. I wanted to know, just as a side note, since you're from Birmingham, and right now you're mm-hmm. studying in Indiana. Again, mm-hmm. haven't been born and raised in the Midwest, but my mama is from the South, mm-hmm. She's originally from Mississippi. So those road trips that we always took to Mississippi every other summer, I would like live for that because the food was next level. I mean, no offense, but it's really hard to get a good shrimp and grits Listen, here. I'm glad you said it first and not me. Um, <laughs> it's been rough. <laughs> 
So how has that transition been for you? I'm just curious. Uh, (laughs) It's been rough. You know, y'all get real snow up here. Um, Real snow. Like the snow that be on TV, you know. That snow that doesn't go away. (laughs) The snow that doesn't go away and you don't shut down for anything and you expect me to come to school and come to work. No, mm, mm, mm. I don't like that. That is a no. Um, it gets really cold, although this past winter wasn't bad. And no, yeah, it was it was fair. fair. I, I was okay. Um, but also just I'm in a rural area, a more rural space, like I drive maybe two minutes from my house and there's a whole field of like corn stalks going on. And that's just different. I I grew up in a city that was 70 is 74% black. And now I'm in a space that's 2.4% black. That that's, that's a culture shock for you. And, um, I'm still learning. Still learning how to navigate that space. At least in Birmingham, I knew where the black spaces were. Like we had streets. You know, you know Beyonce said she was good on any MLK Boulevard, but we ain't got one of those. So I don't know if I'm good anywhere here. No, not in West Lafayette. No, there. not in West Lafayette. That's why I was asking. Although you are not far from Northwest Indiana and the region. So Anytime you want to make a short road trip and kind of see where some of the good sites and the good food is, I we would be more than put happy on, to show put you. Me on. Let me know. I'm gonna I'm pull up. I'm gonna have my mask. <laughs> exactly. Well, Ariel, it has just been a delight, and I truly thank you for joining us on this episode, of the Gourmet Goober. As always, I'm here with. My hubby and co-host T Outlaw. T, where can they find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at T Outlaw. That's T O U T L A W. I can spell. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, and on Instagram at T Outlaw Josie Wells. And of course, you can always find me on Twitter at JJ Outlaw and on Instagram at the Gourmet Goober. Drop us a line and tell us how much you love this interview. Um, you can email us at thegourmetgoober at gmail.com. And you can always visit us at thegourmetgoober.com where we will showcase link to Ariel's podcasts, our podcasts. And of course, there's a whole host of recipes and other things you can find there as well. You can also, you know, come in and pray for her <laughs> please, and her studies. Please. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Definitely say a prayer. Bring your good olive oil. Bring your good olive oil, that Pompeii. <laughs> yes. Well, on behalf of Ariel and myself and T, we want to say thank you again for listening to the Gourmet Goober podcast. We'll be back in two weeks. And until next time, happy eating.